In the year 985 B.C., righteous King David was betrayed by one he loved best, by his own son Absalom. Absalom declared himself king at Hebron, had a a following, formed an army, and began to march on Jerusalem. David, being betrayed by his own son, flees barefoot and weeping with his closest followers. And we pick up on that account of that terrible story in 2 Samuel 17. While all the country was weeping with a loud voice, all the people passed over. The king also passed over the book, the brook Kidron. In our account today, 1,018 years later, we see that David's greater son, Jesus Christ, also being betrayed by one he loved and also crossing over the brook Kidron. And we pick up with that wonderful story here in Matthew, I'm sorry, in Mark uh, chapter 14, verses 27 through 42, with Jesus there in the Garden of Gethsemane. Just remember that they have just celebrated the last Passover, the first Lord's Supper. They've had that feast. Jesus has told them that one will betray him. He's about to tell them that they're all going to turn their back on him. They are tired. They've had a long day. They go to this particular place on the Mount of Olives and uh, across the brook Kidron, through the Kidron Valley. Uh, And as they cross over that brook, the brook is flooded by the late winter rains, but it's also running red because of the tens of thousands of lambs that have been killed for the Passover and all the blood from all the sacrifices run down. So Jesus is literally crossing over uh, a river, in a sense, or a creek of blood. And soon, Jesus will be all alone. He will be facing the greatest trial completely by himself. And even God himself will forsake him as he takes away the sin of his people. As the wrath of God is turned upon Jesus Christ for your salvation. Let us join our Lord on the night that he was betrayed as he prays to God the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we... We thank you, God, uh, for inviting us to, uh, to partake in and be part of this most intimate, most sad of scenes, perhaps, in all of Holy Scripture, where the righteous Lord Jesus Christ is going to be abandoned, betrayed, and that God, the Father himself, will eventually turn his face upon him as Jesus Christ takes on the sin of his people. I pray, God, that with a holy and joyful sobriety, we would gain from this experience of looking at this precious word today, and that we would be challenged to love the Lord our God all the more and to understand the seriousness of our sin. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Please do turn to Mark chapter 14. We're going to be looking at verses 27 through 42. So it's a, a rather large pa- passage, but it was difficult to, uh, to, to chop up here. And uh, uh, so we have you know, the, uh, the account of Jesus again in the valley uh, there, uh, the Kidron Valley, uh, up on the bottom of the Mount of Olives there in the Garden of Gethsemane. And you'll see if you have your home group's helps, it might help you with the, uh, the outline for this morning. We're going to see that Jesus... Uh, Jesus' abandonment is predicted in verses 27 through 31. 
And then we're going to see Jesus is in agony in spirit, verses 32 through 34. And Jesus' appeal to the Father, verses 35 through 36. And Jesus' betrayal is at hand in verses 37 through 42. So we go, first of all, to Jesus' abandonment, predicted in verse 27 through 31. This is the word of the Lord. God says, Mark writes, And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, Even though all may fall away, yet I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you that this very night before a rooster crows twice, you yourself will deny me three times. But Peter kept saying insistently, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all were saying the same things also. So Jesus says it is written. That's, of course, is a common formula for uh, quoting an Old Testament text here. And the text that he quotes uh, comes to us from the suffering uh, shepherd uh, or the martyrdom of the good shepherd in Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. And he says that he's going to strike down the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. The interesting thing is that, that I will strike down is in the first person singular. In other words, it's God who's going to strike down the shepherd. Or God will allow the shepherd to be struck down. So the old question comes back, you know, who killed Jesus? Was it the Romans? Was it the Jews? It, it was God himself who allowed uh, Jesus. Now, he did it at the hands of evil people, but he was the one who struck down the shepherd. And, and, and go back to the suffering servant passage of Isaiah chapter 53. It says this in verse 10, But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. You're thinking, well, I thought Jesus was God's son. Why would he be pleased for him to go through all the suffering? Because it was worth it. Because through that, your salvation came. And God understood that and knew that and ordered those things so that he was pleased to strike down this good shepherd here. It's amazing, though. Uh, He's going to do it through the betrayal of his friends. Uh, uh, He's going to do it through the the wickedness of the Sanhedrin. He's going to do it through the, the might of Rome. Again, God even uses your sin to accomplish his purposes the idea that they're going to fall away as the greek is that there's our word scandalon again it means to cause to stumble it's in a passive sense so they're not going to leap away they're going to fall away so you're going to see these remaining 11 apostles they're going to sin like the way we mostly sin it's not going to be a deliberate intentional planned betrayal of jesus they're just going to get overwhelmed and they're going to cave uh, like we do. I mean, how many of you, when you wake up in the morning, think, I think I'm going to lose my temper about 3.30 this afternoon. I think I'm going to reserve a little bit of time around lunchtime to gossip. I mean, that's just not the way we operate, right? At least not for Christians. But then we get into a situation, we start to gossip, we get in a situation, we're tempted, and we fall away. We fall away. So as we look at the majesty and the glory and the power and the and the suffering that Jesus is going through, we also can go to school on the failure of the apostles. They're men just like we are, and they're sinners just like we are. 
Notice that it was, uh, that it was written. You will fall away because it is written. So the, the falling away was actually foreordained before the foundations of the earth, just like other things are. Uh, that the, the, they will fall away because it was written in the Old Testament Scriptures, and yet they're culpable. They are responsible for their own actions here. But he gives them a sense of encouragement as well. He says, but after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. You wonder if they even heard that. Because he's basically saying, you're going you're gonna to fall away from me, and they're probably still focused on this, but he says, well, then when I'm raised from the dead, I'm going to meet you again in Galilee. He's already making plans. He's like, put it on your calendar. After all this thing uh, uh, looks like it's falling apart, I'm actually going to meet you in Galilee. And, of course, if you've read ahead, <laughs> he does. Isn't it wonderful how Jesus' ministry began in Galilee and it's going to end up ending in Galilee right before his ascension there uh, at Jerusalem? But, of course, you got Peter. Peter, Peter uh, jumps in here, but Peter said to them, even though they all may fall away, Yet I will not. How would you like to be one of the other guys? So Peter's like, even though everybody else is probably going to fail you, not me, because I'm Peter. I mean, it's just this pride of comparison, right? Uh, and, and that's going to make it even worse, because he's going to humiliate himself by putting down these others. They may fall away. Oh, Andrew, you know, you can't. You, and Matthew, that we know about Matthew. He's probably going to fall away, but not me. I'm not going to do that. It's that. Same kind of pride we've seen all the time, haven't we? All throughout our, our adventure through the Gospel of Mark. Whenever Jesus says that I'm going to die, they just deny it. And they deny it boastfully and, and, proud, and in a proud way. You remember when uh, Peter revealed who Christ was and then, he, then Christ says he's going to suffer and Peter pulls Christ aside and rebukes him? Can you imagine rebuking Jesus? I don't even know what that would look like. And what does Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. You don't have your, your mind on God's will. You have it on your, your own will. He rebukes him. What's interesting this time was with all this bragging and all this denying that this is what's going to happen, even though Jesus is the Son of God, and they ended up failing him, Jesus just is silent at this point in time. He knows they're going to fail. There's no sense of rebuking him. He just becomes silent. You... You husbands know that's when it gets bad in, in, in terms of your relationship with your wife, when she is just dead silent. You know you've really messed up. Here's a tip for Father's Day. Go and apologize. <laughs> Find out what it is that you've done. And Jesus is doing the same thing. He's just silent. He doesn't answer their, their boasting here. Uh, one of the things, too, that's interesting is that if you go to this, the parallel account in Luke chapter 22, uh, in Luke he says Satan, uh, Luke, Jesus is, talking to Peter, Satan has demanded uh, permission to sift you like wheat. It's so hard for us, I think especially as Westerners, to, to understand the spiritual warfare that we're in. But it is constant. In this very room, at this very moment, there are angels and there are demons, and they are battling. We just can't see it. If you tried to get three children here this morning, you probably got a little bit better taste about what that battle looked like than some others. We just don't see it, and we tend to dismiss that. But Jesus told Peter himself, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. And Jesus is telling him, that sifting is going to look like this. You're going to deny me three times. Reminded of Ephesians chapter 6, which we would all do well to understand. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. 
So if our battle is actually against spiritual forces, that ought to keep us from hating people on this earth. You know, it just seems like you can hardly check the news any day without getting just so angry at the wickedness of men. And yet those men, those women that are saying and doing those wicked things are prisoners of war. And if it wasn't for God's grace, you might be in that same situation. So how in the world do we as physical people battle in this spiritual realm? Well, we do it with spiritual weapons. Paul goes on to say, Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day, having done everything to stand firm. You were to stand firm. What's one of the greatest weapons that we have? Prayer. What does Jesus in a few minutes tell them to do while he is in the garden? Pray. What do they do? They fall asleep. He goes on to say here, Before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Not once, not twice, but three times. This will be a terrible sifting uh, that takes place here. And then he says, Peter kept insisting, Even if I have to die with you, uh, you, uh, I will not deny you. So the conversation is just dropped. Yeah, this is one of these things that they're making these, these professions here, and they're, they're going to stand with Jesus, and you can understand why they do that. One, one lesson I've learned, if, if I'm ever going to decide I'm going to fast, I don't do it when I'm full. You know, if you've had a big old all-you-can-eat dinner, and you say, I'm going to start fasting tomorrow, the best time to decide whether you're going to fast is when you're actually hungry because you're much less likely to cave. Well, there's a lot of things in life like that. You've you, you got to put yourself into the fight, and they're just not even thinking. They're thinking this is an impossible situation that it could hurt. There's no way we're going to deny themselves because they can't imagine this happening. Well, it does happen, and they do end up denying him. And it says here, of course, Peter is normally the spokesman. They were all say, saying the same thing. They all said the same thing. Also, uh, there's a, there, are, there is a, a, a holy confidence that a Christian should have. Confidence that we're loved by God, God that God is in charge, and that ought to embolden us. But, but we need to be very careful in putting confidence in our flesh. Proverbs 16, 18 says this, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. And I think the lesson that we're going to learn today from these, uh, these apostles is they all uh, cave, and as we see uh, uh, next Sunday when they, when they flee, uh, the, the lesson is this, is if we don't learn humility ourselves, God's going to make sure that we are humbled, that we can learn the lesson. And we see that taking place later on. Then we see here Jesus is in agony and spirit in verses uh, 32 through 34. What's so interesting here is here's Jesus, the Son of God, but we also remember that Jesus is also human. And his human nature is struggling, just like your human nature struggles. And they came to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here until I have prayed. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. So Gethsemane is there at the bottom of uh, Mount Olives. You can still go there today. It means actually it's uh, Hebrew for olive press. So there was an olive grove there, probably a privately owned garden that uh, uh, a follower of Jesus allowed them to use from time to time. They were there just 24 hours ago as he was teaching about the destruction of uh, Jerusalem here. 
and then he, he sets these others and says, you sit here until I've prayed. So he leaves most of the disciples outside the gate, perhaps, and he goes in a little bit further into the garden. He takes with him his, his cohort uh, of, of the closest disciples, Peter, James, and John. You add Andrew to that, and those are the ones that are kind of the inner circle uh, that Jesus has here. And they're in this just this beautiful, quiet evening scene. It's, just, it's a garden. Uh, and, uh, and, and it says here, though, that his soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. He knows what's going to happen. He's been telling them what's going to happen here. He is burdened with grief. He is in despair. This is the Son of God. He's also the Son of Man. And personally, I'm grateful for these little views, these vignettes, and these understandings of Jesus' human nature because that makes it more real to us, doesn't it? I like what James Edwards said. Nothing in all the Bible compares to Jesus' agony and anguish in Gethsemane. Neither the laments of the Psalms nor the broken heart of Abraham as he prepared to sacrifice his son Isaac, nor David's grief at the death of his son Absalom. Luke twenty two forty four even speaks of Jesus' sweat falling to the ground like drops of blood. He was at this extreme level of grief. Why? I mean, haven't you read historical accounts of other men who faced death and that were cool and they were calm as they went to the gallows, as they went to the stake, as they went off into battle? Jesus is facing death, but he's facing so much more than that. He's facing something that he's the only one that can face. He's, it's not only his death, it's not only his torturous death, but it's the reason for that death. It's because he is going to take on your sin on the cross and all the legitimate accusations that are against you. And because of that, the wrath of his father, whom he has loved ever since, ever since God is going to turn his back. To the point where he cries out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think that's what's breaking his heart. So it's that separation from God the Father in a situation where he has never known separation before. The substitutionary atonement where he substitutes, he's put to death so that we won't have to. And if you understand the emotion that's involved, I think it probably causes us to realize the seriousness of our sin. And to be more grateful to our Lord for saving us and for nailing our sin to the cross with Jesus. He's literally astonished at how overwhelmed he is. And he says here, remain and keep watch here. The sad thing is, is that even his best friends are going to abandon him. They're going to leave him. They're going to fall asleep. One little thing, instruction he gave them. Stay here and keep watch. Stay here and keep watch. You can do that, right? But they didn't. They end up falling asleep three different times. You know, we often think, uh, we think about, you know, I really want to be there in the big moment when I really can make a stand for Jesus where I can really do something heroic, whatever. Those big moments will not come if you're not there in the little moments. Just sort of a basic principle here. One, one of these first principles I learned as a Christian when I was discipled uh, some 40 years ago is Luke 16, 10. He who is faithful in the very little thing is faithful also in much, and he who is unrighteous in the little thing is unrighteous also in much. Peter says in 2 Peter two nineteen, By what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. 
1 Corinthians 9, Paul says this, Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I discipline or buffet or bruise my body in order to make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. He gave them a little instruction. You stay here and you keep watch. You pray. I'm going to go further in the garden. And they all end up failing them. And that failure, as we will see, will lead to greater failures down the road here. Now we see here Jesus' appeal to the Father in verses 35 through 36. And he went a little beyond them and fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. This agonizing moment, this agonizing prayer of intimacy with the Father so impressed uh, the next generation of Christians. The author of Hebrews says this, In the days of his flesh he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Hebrews 5, 7. We often don't think about this moment. We think more, we kind of go to the cross and then to the resurrection. But really, this may have been a bigger trial. This may have been a more difficult situation. He calls out Abba, Father. Uh, Abba, of course, means Papa, or as we would say down south, Daddy. It is, a, it is a term of intimacy and trust and affection here. God the Father is his Daddy. He's his Papa. Rabbis would be, they would think that was presumptive. You would never address God the Father that way. But because Jesus did it, we are allowed to address God the Father that way. We have that kind of intimacy. He tore the veil of the temple in two. We have access to God to where God the Father, the creator of the universe, the God who is all just and all love, is actually our Father, our spiritual Daddy. He says here, all things are possible. You get, see, we look at the content of his uh, prayer, and we learn something from that. All things are possible from you. Remove this cup from me. The cup, of course, is a, ma- a metaphor of the wrath of God. And he's, and he's praying here that please remove this cup. He's just overwhelmed emotionally. He is struggling with what's, what's to come. He doesn't want his fathers to turn his back here. And he's kind of basic. This is a real temptation, folks. In a sense, he's saying, this is the last opportunity, God. I've got to move forward. We've been talking about this. We've known about this as time is coming. But, but if there is any way to stop this, would you please consider stopping it? This is the last opportunity for God to do something. In just moments, well, about an hour or two from here, things are going to get out of hand real fast, and they're going to move forward. In a terrible, terrible way. He says here, all things are possible for you, recognizing, uh, recognizing God's great power. But here's the thing. Ask yourself this question. Why did God not answer his prayer? I mean, Jesus, you know, we, when God doesn't answer our prayers, we can think, well, it's probably a pretty good reason. I'm really being kind of an idiot. <laughs> you know, I'm really just full of sin, and uh, I don't know what I'm praying anyway. You know, and my prayers are pretty bad. That wasn't the case with Jesus. He he completely walked in his Father's will. Why didn't God answer Jesus' prayer? Because he couldn't. Are you saying God can't do something? Apparently, that's the situation. This is important. 
there was no plan B. The only way you could have eternal salvation was through the substitutionary atonement. The sacrifice that has to have occur because of your sin had to be the perfect Son of God. Jesus is the only plan. He has to die or the whole world is doomed. There's no alternative. There's no rescuing of the Calvary at the end. This is the way it's been planned from the beginning. Now, y'all, that's important because the substitutionary atonement is attacked all the time. Liberals call it cosmic child abuse. They poo-poo the idea of sin, so they they poo-poo the idea of the forgiveness of sins that comes on the cross of Jesus Christ. If God could have figured out another way than to kill his perfect son as a sacrifice offering in our stead, he would have done it. But God did not have another way. There was not another way. So God doesn't answer Jesus' prayer. Praise God for that. But notice part of the prayer was this, if it's your will, if it's your will. Same kind of thing we say in the, in the Lord's Prayer, right? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What you're going to see after this is Jesus just has a holy resolve. I prayed, God said, no, I am moving forward. I am heading towards the cross. I'm not going to pray that prayer anymore. Folks, this is a good lesson for us because God often says no to our, no to our prayers, right? Is that going to create us, us a spirit of, of whining, of complaining, of of trying to act like, you know, tell people what a martyr you are because life is so difficult for you? Are you willing to say, all right, God, I ask God to relieve me of this, to answer this prayer, to heal me, to save this person, whatever it might be? And he said, no, so this must be the way. This is the plan. I can move forward in joy and in confidence. If God said no to Jesus, he can say no to you, right? And praise God he does. We can have a holy confidence as Jesus did and we can move forward in the confidence that it is better that he would say no than if he were to say yes. So he says all things are possible. The fact is there was just simply no other option. Again, the Apostle Paul picks up on this amazing uh, theme of the humility of Jesus Christ in Philippians 2. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, and being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And now we see here Jesus' betrayal is at hand, verses 37 through uh, 42. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you will not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came up and found him sleeping. For the eyes of them were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came back a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let us go. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. You know, it's interesting. We read this account, and, and we've read it, and, and we, 
can we be honest? We kind of sympathize with them. Remember their schedule that day. They were kind of active all day. They go and prepare the Passover. They eat this meal. They have four cups of wine, and it's about 1 o'clock in the morning. And they're now in this quiet, cool garden on a spring evening. And there's a bunch of moss right there. I'm just going to lay down just for a minute, right? But the fact is that Jesus commanded them to swatch and to pray. Don't fall asleep. And he's very disappointed. They have left him alone. It was hard enough. And then his friends have already shown a sign of something that is to come. Yeah, again, this is not like they were planning on sinning. It was just the, the weakness of the moment overcame them. This is what happens to us too, right? We get hangry because we're hungry. Uh, we're depressed. We're discouraged. We're distracted. We start going into self-pity mode and everything else. That's why he had to die for us. There's so many sins we commit we don't even want to com- commit because our spirit is willing, but our flesh is so very very weak so three times they have failed here this is going to be a foreshadow of the three times that peter is going to deny him here it's brilliant how all these things work in together and he says here the son of man is being betrayed i don't know whether or not he could see the mob coming towards from jerusalem with torches and stuff or if divine revelation just revealed to him that judas was leading the mob and they were close at hand but basically it, it was it was too late there's no time for prayer now. This is going to be the, one of the biggest spiritual tests of your life, and you should have been praying about it. You should have been fighting this spiritual warfare, but you caved. You fell asleep. By the way, they did it three times. They already had a nap. They had two naps. They could have stayed up a third time. And they went back asleep again. How like them we are. Again, this is the reason why he had to go through what he went through, our Flesh is so very, very weak. So his disciples were not there for him when they needed to be. They were not spiritually ready for the big test that was about to come. And it was just too late. The time was at hand. You know, sometimes, folks, it is too late to repent. Don't put off repentance. Delayed obedience is planned disobedience. If there's something that the Lord is putting on your heart, even now, you repent from it now. You may not have tomorrow. They did not. They all will end up caving, as we'll see on next Lord's Day. And yet, there's a resolve here with Jesus, which is amazing. He prayed that if possible, the cup would pass from him. God said no. He passed that test. And you just see him moving forward from now on with total courage and dignity. God said no. This is the will. This is what we have decided. I am moving forward in holy confidence. He is so far above the, the disciples and his accusers in this trial going to the cross and the other trials that are here to come. Instead of running away from the cross, Jesus moved forward with a settled confidence. Well, King David defeated Absalom in a battle. Absalom was killed. David, King David came back into Jerusalem in victory. King David's greater son, Jesus Christ, a thousand years later, will do the same thing. He will win the battle, and he will come back to Jerusalem, and he will ascend to heaven. But the battle has not been fought yet, and that's going to be where we're going to 
see what the Lord has to say to us the next few Sundays as we look at the cross and the tragedy of an innocent man dying and the glory and the wonder and the power of an innocent man dying for us. Father, we thank you for the intimacy of being allowed to be in the garden with Jesus. Lord, I just think, I think we, th- we think about how important it is for us to muster the self-control in order for us to not sin, in order for us to worship and things like that. And there's value to that. But I just think, I just think if we just loved you so much more than we do, there would just be so much less competition for your affection. And sin would lose its shine. And we thank you, God, that you give us moments like this where we can see the real person of Jesus in his human struggles and his divine glory. And it just makes us want to just, just fall in love with him all over again. So as you have invited us to the intimacy of the garden and the, and the, and the pouring out of Jesus' heart towards you and the betrayal of his closest friends, I pray, God, that you would help us just to let the love of Christ grow in us to where we will be vigilant and we will watch and we will pray.